0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While anticipation is growing, as planning is underway to vaccinate children in the Ottawa area. Officials waiting for Health Canada approval. Are we concerned that maybe some small but hesitant groups may hold the process up? And what's in store for the kids? Well, we'll talk about that. How can we fix the housing affordability crisis? Well, one organization has a solution that they're calling on the government for action. Tim Hudak, CEO of Aurea, will join us with the details. And this is National Seniors Day. What do we need to do to support our seniors? It's part of the discussion coming up with the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with uh vaccines and vaccines for kids very much in the news these days and uh it's looking very encouraging about uh, the possibility of, of maybe vaccines for kids before the end of this year as uh, a, a former u.s uh, vaccine health official as uh, some weeks ago now uh said that the report from pfizer at that time was very encouraging what they were talking about at that time was a, a lower dose of covid19 vaccine uh that they thinking was going to be effective in protecting young children jackie quinn has the details on that
1: Pfizer officials are ready to apply for FDA approval by the end of the month. After reporting testing of more than 2,000 children ages 5 to 11, finds antibody levels were as strong as those in teens and young adults who received a regular strength COVID shot. Robust immune response
2: and a satisfactory safety profile.
1: Pfizer senior vice president and pediatrician Dr. Bill Gruber says parents have been eager to have their children return to a normal life to reduce the risk of their child getting sick as well as transmitting to the family. Georgetown University's Dr. Jesse Goodman, a former FDA vaccine chief, says the level of immune response appears likely to be protective. Although the study isn't large enough to detect rare side effects like heart inflammation, Jackie Quinn, Washington.
0: Well, we seem to have moved at rapid speed since then. And uh, now there's a story today that, uh, for instance, uh, that uh, that okay and that thumbs up could actually come sooner than later here in Canada. And they're talking about actually vaccination programs for that uh, age group uh, within the next couple of months. Joining us to talk about all of this is Dr. Timothy Sly. Dr. Sly is an epidemiologist and a professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, Dr. Sly, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Indeed, Bill. Thank you very much. And the, the report there sounds awfully simplistic. Like, well, they just give them a half dose and everything should be fine. There's, I'm, I'm guessing, Doctor, a little more went into these uh, these tests and the studies.
3: Oh, there's nothing done. There's slapdash here. I mean, these you've got to do, do the right thing and be seen to be doing the right thing as well. What they have found out is that normal 30 milligram dose given to adults, uh, we can achieve the same uh, the same level of uh, of immunity by giving them about a third. And that's probably not to do with body size. You know, a lot of toxicology stuff, Mm -hmm. you divide by the body size. In this case, the kids really have a a much better, much more aggressive immune system, and they can handle this, and it stimulates them to produce the same amount of effect. And they're actually thinking about less than five-year-olds. If we come to that, it could even be about a three milligram, even less than that to produce the same
0: effect. I wanted to ask you about that, because you know, we, we would be remiss if we didn't suggest that kids and adults are different. They're not just little adults. Uh, their bodies are different. They, they, the, the makeup is different. They're still developing in different ways. Th- that must have been a factor, doctor, in, in how effective a vaccine could be.
3: Oh, absolutely. Our immune system. I mean, look at the other end, Bill. I mean, old, nasty, old, crusty people like me have, have got a, a weakened immune system. No matter how much vaccine you put in, you don't produce quite as much uh, antibodies. But the your kids are raring to go. And this is why during the 1918 uh, influenza, it was the younger people who became infected, uh, and uh, and they died at a greater rate as well. People between about 17 and, and mid-20s were dying at a much greater rate than the older people, which is unusual for influenza back in uh, uh, 1918
0: so it, it looks as if things are going to go pretty well here i mean we you know we fingers crossed what what is the protocol for something like this doctor we we've heard about all the testing that, that all of these companies did uh, before they were ready to roll out the vaccines uh well late last year into early this year uh and there were tests there were massive tests done and there was a, a, an analysis of all of those tests done uh did they take that as, as kind of a baseline for what they're doing with the kids vaccine or do they start from score one
3: well, the original uh, the original mandate was for, for adults because they were the people who yeah. seemed to be more of a problem. And then uh, when they began to try, the trials for the kids, of course, they they were worried that they wouldn't get very many cases at all because uh, you know kids don't seem to suffer from it. When they looked more closely, they found out that there was. Uh, a number. Of, they were a higher percentage than they imagined uh, with the with the virus, because the kids kids are more more likely to be asymptomatic, and so they had the numbers there. Remember that they worked to what they call a power analysis. You need the right number of people, no less than that, in order to find the effect if it's there, and they did find it, and it was there, and it was quite, it was quite remarkably uh, successful.
0: So. The story we heard from Ottawa is this going to be happening in the next few weeks. Ottawa is a bit different, though, because they're higher than the provincial average when it comes to adult uh, vaccinations. Eighty three percent of the population over 12 is fully vaccinated in Ottawa. So if uh, if they're going to use a community as a test case, uh, not a bad one to do, because it seems as if there's a pretty good uptake in that community.
3: Pretty good uptake. It varies across the countries. You've yeah. seen on your news reports. Uh, Hamilton, actually, from, from Ontario, is a little bit low. It's it's about yes. the, in the bottom number three, I think. But the, we're all doing well. And this is the message: since you and I have been talking for what the a year and a half, more than that, we've been looking for some really good news. And the good news is that at the moment, if you compare all the provinces across Canada, Ontario is doing very well. Uh, we we seem to have flattened off this fourth curve. If anything, it's 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 de- depressed slightly. It's going down slightly. For goodness' sake, let's keep that going. We don't want to be another Saskatchewan or another Alberta. I mean, they're they a the raging dumpster fire of uh, out of controlness over there. We and I think the reason that we're doing well is because our vaccination rates are nowhere near where it should be, but they're much higher than than the other provinces. And uh, I think that we haven't seen the you know the, the mobs of. Uh, of uh, denialists and uh, you know b- 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 protesters around the streets that they have in some of the other places.
0: Let's talk about the vaccination program itself, and I know that uh, you're right. I mean, we we looked at those numbers that uh, that came out earlier this week, and they are very encouraging, and we're glad to see that. But there were some concerns about some specific demographics, and one of them was that younger demographic, that 12 to 17 demographic, uh, that, that they thought would be a higher uptake on that, and and they want to try to reach out to that group and do that, especially people, I guess, that turn 12 this year that are eligible and have not yet uh, received the vaccine. So I, I I guess we've still got some work to do when it comes to, to getting the word out about how it effective this is and, and how to actually access the vaccine
3: yeah with this age group remember they're not making the decision it's the parents making a decision mm-hmm. and so of course parents are ultra we all are we all parents were ultra careful about what goes into our kids and so i think some of that hesitancy is percolating down to the kids but remember there's really five reasons why you've got to start thinking about kids being vaccinated one is that it protects against uh the acute covid effects now we know that's not a very high rate with kids but it does protect them enormously uh it protects against long covid now that's a real concern because we don't know how long this lasts and we don't know the full extent of the damage but we know there's a high proportion of of people Particularly with kids, in this case, it'll go on for a long COVID, and with long with kids, that becomes this multi-systemic uh, inflammatory process that might, in fact, even things like uh, uh, learning ability in, down the road. We just don't know. Third thing, it it protects the, it, herd immunity is really calculated on the whole community, not just the eligible people. It's the entire population, and we need that to be up to about 90 percent, the whole population. So far in Ontario, we're sitting a uh, whole population somewhere around seventy three seventy four percent so we're getting there but we need the kids on board as well they're, fourthly there we need to reduce the risk of transmission to others kids can become infected they may not become uh, uh, symptomatic but we don't want them to bring it home to, to grandma and uh, and the great great uncles you know who are very vulnerable and of course, lastly we need to keep them in school safely, relaxed, calmly, and learning. We don't want them home again for another visit. So there's good reasons to give the kids a vaccine.
0: Doctor, what do those numbers look like if, we've, if there is a mass vaccination program for kids, the 12 and under kids, as, as we're anticipating is going to be hopefully in the next few months right now? As you mentioned, we need to hit 90, 91 percent to start talking, even having a discussion now about herd immunity. Would, would those numbers, if, if it's a successful program, bring us toward that goal? Oh,
3: absolutely. Absolutely. The the percentage of kids in Ontario is is sufficiently high. I forget exactly what the right number is, but it it should go a long way to bringing us toward that. At the moment, for example, looking at the the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the vulnerable, the the eligible people, that's more than 12. We're looking in the realm of, of, uh, I think it's uh, percentage of the population age 12 fully vaccinated at the moment is about 80%. But of course, for, for herd immunity, we need the whole community, and that's still around 73%. So we got a little bit of work to do. The, the numbers are much fewer being vaccinated every day at the moment, but they're keeping there. We got to work on those people, and uh, let's move up the whole thing. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, Bill. As long as we hold the course, what we don't want to do is to start relaxing, taking off the mask. Going back to what was normal before, because that way we'd probably end up like Saskatchewan or Alberta.
0: I, I I've got to hunker back. I know this, the the idea about vaccinations is very controversial in some circles. It's a minority, but it's a very vocal minority. How do we get the vaccine to the kids, doctor? When we get to that point, said, okay, we're ready to go. Uh, you and I and others that have been around the track a few times can remember the days when we'd all line up at school. I was just a young child at the time, and we'd all get our polio vaccine or or whatever it was that was going on, and it, that way everybody got it because we were all in that environment. And okay, you're going to get your needles today. Uh, and we, we, as little kids reacted in various ways to that but be that as it may it made us safe i don't know if you can do that these days uh i'm not so sure if boards would be willing to do that sort of thing i don't know what kind of pushback there'd be on that the only other option i guess is well either family doctor or clinics but again the onus is on the parent then isn't it
3: it is. Well, it's always on the parent once you get less yeah, uh, than 12 decisions-making. I think all of the above, don't forget that most of the health units, including Hamilton Wentworth, have got a structure whereby public health nurses go out to schools on a regular basis yeah. just to check on, on kids' MMR and polio and diphtheria and so on, just to, be able to give them a booster when needed and so on. So that mechanism is in place, so the majority could well be done in the classroom. And then the, those that aren't can be done in family doctors and so on. So there shouldn't be any closed doors there. They should be able to get this uh, virtually anywhere.
0: So, and, and that's that's the key. It's, it's it's a matter of getting it in, and we not, noticed that, didn't we, Doctor, earlier this year, uh, when the vaccines were available to adults. I know there was a supply problem initially, but be that as it might, there was a huge rush and a huge uptake to say, yeah, I, I, we're ready. Let's get this done. I know it it tapered off a little bit, and we're where we are right now. But you'd like to say and hope anyway that that same sort of enthusiasm is going to be there when the child vaccines available.
3: And I hope that we've learned from that, Bill, just exactly as you said. Initially, there were, you could only get it here, there, or there. You couldn't get it, for example, you found the doctor in the, in the initial stages or from the local pharmacy. And most older people, retired people at home, they're probably not going to go down to some massive convention center, but they're more than likely to walk to the local pharmacy on the corner or go to see their doctor to get it done. And the same thing with kids as well. All these over
0: avenues should be open to them. Well, which is how I got my second dose, as you and I talked about it. Just went around the corner to my pharmacy, and it was available then. Again, it wasn't when the first doses were being handed out. So, uh, we've improved that way very quickly, doctor. There's one other thing I want you to jump into, and it's become sort of a a contentious point here in Ontario, and that's testing. As you know, there's a debate going on right now about schools. Uh, A number of parent groups are 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 organizing among themselves to 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 have testing kits uh, arranged for kids uh, so that they can be safe until this vaccine is going to be available, and that's that's hasn't happened yet uh, yet the ministry and, and even the chief medical officer Dr. Moore have said that no the testing kits are for uh, industry and for workplaces only not for schools and uh, some people in, in your field and other medical doctors and general practitioners etc. said no 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 everybody including kids should be able to use them is there a benefit to using these testing kits in schools?
3: there always has been a benefit to the whole society using every kind of testing as you know nothing's been 100 percent since the beginning whether it's the the best available vaccine or testing or screening whatever it is we need to layer up all of these protections and why wouldn't uh, it be available for parents with a couple of kids in the family uh, if, if it turns out to be looks like it's positive then you go down and that's when you get the PCR test I think the the argument that says well we don't want to do this and then everybody then goes and gets a pcr test that's not what it's all about we repeat this a couple of days a couple of times a week if, if somebody is, is symptomatic if they're not symptomatic we probably wouldn't even have to do that but the idea of restricting uh, over-the-counter testing that you can get down for just a few dollars i think is is a bit silly quite maybe this they know something that i don't know but uh, i can't see any reason at all why we, we shouldn't have those tests available
0: well, I was trying to go through some of Dr. Moore's comments, and I, I've only talked to the good doctor a couple of times, but I, I, I have the great respect for him because for of his reputation. But the only rationalization I, I'm hearing from either the, the health minister or from uh, Dr. Moore is that, well, they're, they're only for businesses and for, for industry. They're not for kids. There's no rationale there. So I would assume the tests are just as effective on, a, on a, a 10-year-old as they are on a 60-year-old or a 40-year-old, so I'm not quite sure. It's certainly not supply because, as we know, there's hundreds of thousands of them, if not millions of these things, sitting in warehouses doesn't the federal government's order that haven't been used yet.
3: Exactly. Yeah, I believe the federal government ordered something like 70 million of these things, and for a long time, they're just sitting in warehouses. So let's get them out and let's get them used. Uh, the big argument that most people will say, well, but they're not as accurate as the PCR test, the, the, the standard one. Yeah, but we know about that. But if you double up and give the same test to the same person twice, uh, say, in a week, every five days, uh, you're going to get the same level of screening as you will with a very expensive, you know, uh, out-of-range out of PCR test for most people. There's no, no reason why not to do that. I can't say the one one reason is does you don't hear about it too much, and that is that you don't get the official record of these things. You tend to lose the fact that there's positives or negatives if people are using them in their own kitchen. Right? And so we Well, the other
0: element of to that too is guess Dr. Moore did talk about false positives, but is uh, in, in the broader sense, Doctor, isn't it, is that such a bad thing? I mean, you err on the side of caution and keep your child home if there's a positive, and it may, maybe it was much ado about nothing. But on the other hand, you might have prevented a sp- uh, the possible spread.
3: No, that, that's, that's the point that's hit on. That's the point that they're hitting on as well. False positive and false negatives. It's called, called sensitivity and specificity. It's a technical term. The false positive means that the, you, you think that you've got it, but you haven't really, but you end, end up taking more resources to go and get the PCR test. Well, that's okay. That's, that's reasonable. The false negative means a bit, a bit more dangerous from public health. That means that you're showing negative, but in fact, you do have the virus. You, you're moving it around. So those are concerns, but they're not that much of a concern that you would uh, prevent the rest of the population from having access to them. Because you can always get a, get a verification of the, of the false uh, positive to the, that you aren't there. And if you double up again, uh, if you still have symptoms, you double it up again about three or four days later, this time it's positive, well, you've,
0: you've captured it then. Exactly. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for taking some time. Uh, have a good weekend, and we'll talk again soon.
3: Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye.
0: Take care. Dr. Timothy Sly from uh, Rice University, a professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have had a, a number of discussions over the last number of weeks about the housing. I think crisis is probably the right word. Availability, affordability, words like that getting tossed around. It was a major part of discussion in the last federal election. A uh, number of parties, all the parties had some sort of a platform on that. I'm not sure how effective they're going to be. But it's a problem that still exists. And uh, even earlier this week, we talked with Canada Mortgage and Housing. And uh, they had some ideas and some thoughts about this as well. Don Kelly has some details for us.
1: CMHC says the escalation in vulnerability is due to price acceleration and overvaluations across the country. The Federal Housing Agency says the high vulnerability is largely a reflection of intensified and persistent imbalances in Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, Montreal, Moncton and Halifax. They all have high degrees of vulnerability. Victoria, Edmonton and Calgary have moderate degrees. Vancouver, Saskatoon, Regina, Winnipeg and Quebec have low degrees of vulnerability. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto.
0: So everybody's talking about it. It's like that old Mark Twain thing about the weather. Everybody talks about it. Nobody seems to know what to do about it. Uh, Well, there are some suggestions that I think are worthy of some consideration. And uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Tim Hudak. Tim is the CEO of OREA. That's the Ontario Real Estate Association. And always a welcome guest on the program. Tim, I hope you're doing well these days.
2: Hey, Bill. Great to hear from you. Thanks for being on the show. I, I laughed. That was a great thing about Mark Twain. But you know what? We actually do have answers on housing just not the weather.
0: I know, I guess they didn't get your email during the campaign but maybe we can uh, enlighten them now as it were because there are some simple solutions and as you told us Tim the last time you were on the program a few weeks ago, uh, there is no silver bullet if it's going to solve all the problems but there is a process and there are some steps we can take and uh, and I'm not so sure that this federal government is actually in tune with that. They've got a suggestion that I know you want to talk about uh, that I think is going to have some problems with it but let's talk a little bit about exactly how we can do this and and, and I'm going to steal your thunder for just a second, because your mantra has been, ever since this started, is if you increase the supply, you reduce prices and reduce the demand. They don't seem to get that. I know it's basic economics,
2: right? You don't have to go to McMaster to get your econ degree to know that it's a supply and demand equation. Demand is high because real estate's a good investment. We've got uh, the millennials now who are getting promoted. They're rising up the ladder. They're having families and they want homes. The bank of mom and dad is helping them do so. Immigration is going to return likely in 2022, and mortgage rates are low. So demand is high, and and Bill, I really appreciate how much you hammer this away on CHML. The issue is there's not enough supply. you got more and more people circling fewer and fewer homes. It's a cruel game of musical chairs, and now housing prices are going up right across the province as a result. You know, it used to be if you grew up in Stony Creek or Hamilton or Niagara, you imagine that you could buy a home in the neighborhood you grew up in. That was the Canadian dream, at, at least that, right? But that is no longer true in the Hamilton area or Niagara. And it's time politicians had the courage to do something about it.
0: I got to tell you a quick story about that, uh, and you're right. I mean, um, the first time I bought it was actually not too far from where I grew up, was just a few blocks away. And I'd go back to the neighborhood, you know, to the hardware store, the home hardware, and everything. And I'd run into guys I went to school with. And, oh yeah, I'm living over here. I'm living over here. Uh, example of it. I ran into. Actually, I didn't run into him. I emailed the other day. He's in Halifax now because he couldn't afford a house in Hamilton. Uh, and and that's how bad the crisis has been right now. It comes down to affordability, and it's so that we just can't find anything. Uh, and and the, I don't understand what what part of that the governments don't seem to get. You, you know, you,
2: the, I'm just going to jump on the Halifax thing. We recently did a survey of Ontarians. We found an alarming number of people. Uh, almost 50% are those that are 45 and under have looked outside of Ontario for a home just because they can afford it. It's the only reason driving them away. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, like you mentioned, were the top ones on the list. I mean, that's our future leaders, right? That's our future entrepreneurial talent and job creators hightailing it out of Ontario because they can't afford A home for their family. So we've begun a campaign to turn this around and your listeners on CHML can find it at bringaffordabilityhome.com. Again, bringaffordabilityhome.com. We lay out ideas to turn this around. By the way, you can can actually press get active and send a message directly to your MPP. We can figure that out by your postal code. But the bottom line here, more supply, got to reduce the red tape, the hassle, the runaround. You have to confront the NIMBY forces that are driving away affordable homes. Government is the biggest landlord in Hamilton and in Ontario, using some government land for housing and a little bit of help to first time home buyers. These solutions can actually help bring the keys to your first home closer to hand
0: well I, I, we, we could spend the next hour and a half talking about the problem but i think a lot of people are, are aware of the problem like you say tim it, it, you're either one of those age groups one of those demographics that are looking or you're the bank of mom and dad that is saying hey you know w- w- we can help you here but you know where are you going to be able to live uh, and that's the concern i mean you, there was a time when if you couldn't afford a house in hamilton well and you know because this was your own stopping grounds back in your political days well you'd move to grimsby and now you okay know, okay maybe it's a little further east now maybe you're heading down to vineland and then you're heading well jordan harbor and then to st Catharines. well that's Starting to, it, it, there's nowhere to go right now. So, what we're saying is, okay, everybody, all of you municipalities, let's sit down and decide how we're going to work with this. And there's one point in, in uh, the, the piece that you sent us, Tim, that I, I really want you to spend some time on because I think it makes all kinds of sense. Uh, it's called exclusionary single family zoning uh, in high dem- demand areas. And it, it kind of goes to what you talked about before. Yes, the federal government has to pony up. Yes, the provincial government has to be there. But municipalities have a role to play here because that's where the building gets done and that's where a lot of the red tape is
2: exactly and this is the chief area where nimby forces who want to keep homes out are standing in the way so so picture this like think of you know sort of central hamilton a a wartime uh, bungalow and somebody wants to to tear that down it's just uh, past its prime and they want to build on that property now in most of our cities you can build a four-story monster home without any kind of hassle and that'll be good for you know one wealthy family but if you try to go the other way and replace with a duplex, a triplex, a townhomes, maybe affordable homes for three or four families on that property, you get the book thrown at you. You get years of runaround and red tape, more expenses, and NIMBY forces come on you. And then many builders say, well, the heck with it. I'm, I'm not going to build these homes. And three or four Hamilton families can't find a place to live. So we're saying level the playing field, make the process more straightforward, simple yes or no answers and don't put people through this hassle and higher expense when they're trying to do the right thing and bring affordable homes into the market
0: well and and that comes to density i know that's a word that a lot of people tend to get a little upset about because they think well i don't want high rises etc but it, i mean we do have to make uh, an effective use of the space that's available within city limits and 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 the, and your organization by the way is, has been one of the leading advocates of this i know that people that don't want to see uh, any kind of r- urban expansion at all tim have always said well these guys realtors uh developers they're just uh, they're just uh, after it for the money that's all they care about uh you're preaching that listen yeah we need to do this but that's probably not going to be enough to accommodate the, the need that's there right now. But let's do some infill. And this is one of those ideas, I think, that addresses that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got a choice, right? We've got limited land that's available uh, between uh, Lake Ontario uh, and the Greenbelt. And we could maximize our use of that land. It will in, 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 cause us to, to look at doing things like densification in urban areas and high-demand areas. But our other choice, Bill, is to send everybody to New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, and that's simply untenable. We've come to a crisis point when it comes to housing affordability. So we suggest that exclusionary zoning, eliminating this bias against more affordable homes in our system in high-demand urban areas where there's already maybe intensification close by, we have got a new transit or go station, that makes sense. Those types of sensible policies will enable hard-working middle-class families finally achieving that Canadian dream of home ownership.
0: And we're not talking about blowing up urban boundaries and say, okay, build wherever the hell you guys want. Uh, but there's got to be some some thought goes into this, and there has to be some education about this too, though, Tim. And, and and I know I get some heat from people when I bring this up, but you know, when you look at and again, it comes down to the municipalities about zoning. I mean, as as you know, uh, you know, some some areas of a community are single-family residential. Some are zoned for multi-residential. Some are zoned for industrial. Uh, some for commercial. But the fallback position, if you don't have a zoning qualification, they call it uh, agricultural. Well, not all of that land that's ruled as agricultural is really agricultural land. I mean, you know, there was one piece I know up in the East Mountain, uh, up in the East uh, Stoney Creek there, in your old writing, uh, there was nothing but rocks. Uh, and my of uh, Mine, who was a farmer, said it's, it's useless. I said, please develop it. But they said, no, 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 it's agricultural. We don't want to grow anything there. But we we have to have some education about this and understand exactly what we're dealing with. Uh,
2: absolutely. be based on good science. So if something is high-level agricultural land, can't be replaced uh, environmentally uh, precious then use the science and set aside that land and keep it we don't need to touch uh, an inch of the green belt there's plenty of space no, around your build right. homes but you do need a balance in the system our intensification advice is going to be good for some that's good for starter homes as you know bill once you get that first home it's easier to move up the ladder than to get in the market in the first place, but we also do need more space to bring people to Hamilton. Look, Hamilton's success story is, is something we should be proud of across our nation. It's terrific to see the turnaround. More people want to live there, raise their families there, start companies there. But if we don't find the space for the workers to live in, those jobs are going to pull up and go somewhere that will welcome
0: when we get a, a, a report like we did this week from a CMHC, Tim, that basically says Hamilton is now in one of these high-risk areas, is, is that a, a clear indicator that this this community specifically has not kept up with the demand?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, you need to actually increase the housing supply dramatically uh, in the Hamilton and um, Halton uh, areas in Niagara, too. And that's a good problem to have. That means people want to live there. They want to open up companies there. So our view is let, let's welcome that in. Let's do so in sensible ways. Let's, let's get rid of these 1960s and 70s bylaws from the bygone era that are preventing affordable homes from being built. Let's use government land that is, you know, underutilized or not utilized at all. If there are buildings that the government won't use because they're shrinking their footprint with work from home, converting them to affordable housing units, whether rental or owned, you know, can be done quite quite readily. We also believe that we can help out first time home buyers by eliminating the capital gains, sorry, eliminating the land transfer tax that you pay when you buy your first home or at least doubling the current rebate That's extra cash in hand to help with the down payment. That's a way government can help those first time buyers get into the market.
0: And, and and this is really what the discussion should be about it's it's about putting a roof over people's heads uh, and there's going to be as you say different strokes for different folks some people will love to be in a in a triplex or a duplex or something like that uh, others wouldn't mind being in a high-rise other but there are going to be others that say look at I want a backyard so I can put a swing set in there uh, and have my kids play and I want a park nearby I want bike you know trials and things of this nature there's got to be a mix or, or you're just not going to solve the crisis
2: yeah, what's, they call it the missing middle, right? A lot of our urban areas, including uh, downtown Hamilton, are either tall or sprawl, right? You've got your really tall buildings and then your single-family homes. And what's missing in between are the three or four stories, the townhouses. And that's really good to the market because often that's really good for first-time home buyers working with a realtor. Or secondly, you know, the grandparents then can move into the, those types of places Stay close to the grandkids, but free up that family home for a new family starting out. That is an essential missing block. And you can see on our website, bringaffordabilityhome.com. These answers are there, and you can contact your MPP to say, hey, I like idea three, five, and six. Let's get moving. I want to see my son or daughter get a place to call home.
0: There's one other element to this. I just wanted to touch base with you on, though, Tim, because I know that CMHC talked about this as well, and it was one of the things that came up during the federal campaign, uh, uh, is the promise to actually try to make things more affordable. What they're trying to do is reduce some fees. Now, you already mentioned that mortgage rates are ridiculously low these days, and that's that's a good thing for people that are jumping into the market, although they need to go in with eyes wide open because the rates are probably going to go up in 2022. But the, the government during the election talked about uh, a promise to actually reduce the insurance offered by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. To try to make that a a smaller figure, and you know, so that's less money that they're going to have to pay out initially, which sounds enticing off the top, Tim. And I'm hardly a real estate expert, but I understand that if I'm paying less in premiums, I'm getting less coverage. Is is this really a smart thing to do? So, uh, what the the liberals are proposing, I think there's a hit and miss in there. Um, First of all, I'm happy to see
2: all three parties in this last federal election putting ideas on the table that were on our list. They got them from us, they came with them on their own, you know, great. The Democrats, for example, said we should bring back 30-year amortizations for mortgages. That was the most popular tool for first-time buyers because they tend to move up the ladder, make more money, and pay down the mortgage as their incomes rise. So that was a good idea. The Conservatives had suggested not making people go through the stress test when they're renewing their mortgages if they had a clean mortgage record. That made sense to us uh, as well. The Liberals had some ideas around a new savings account you could do tax free, kind of like the RRSP to help with your down payment. To get to your question here, it is risky if they're reducing the mortgage um, premiums because they're supposed to be based on math, right? Just as insurance mm-hmm. is. So that looked like well be helpful to first time buyers. It looked like something that was sort of cobbled together right before the campaign. C M H C is not the only place of mortgage insurance. There are private providers as well. So they have to follow a certain percentage. And I don't like the idea of the government giving itself an advantage on the backs of taxpayers. Their other promise uh, is to uh, increase the level before you're no longer eligible for mortgage insurance to $1.25 million, as currently capped at a $1 And you know, growing up in the 70s, that sounds crazy, right? <laughs> Those were all you know, mansions uh, growing up. But in major urban areas now, that actually is a middle-class home. So that part of it does make sense. So that's a 50-50 there,
0: Bill. Tim, what about the possibility of, of getting everybody at the table about this? And I mean, all three levels of government, and I know it's going to vary. Uh, you know, For for instance, your idea about the, the, the exclusionary single-family zoning, uh, much more of a problem in Toronto than it is in Hamilton, although now that we're being grouped in with Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal, maybe it's a discussion that we should be having. London is on the cusp of that, we're told. Their, their crisis is maybe just a couple of months behind what we're talking about with these other areas right now. But wh- wh- why can't we get everybody together and say, look, let's just talk about a whole approach to this that's going to include some of these things including the, at the at the municipal level because you know there's always the money for the demand for money and I get that uh, from federal and provincial governments there's always the idea about okay what are we going to do about uh, urban boundaries and I know you know that there's a big debate going on in Hamilton right now about the urban boundary whether or not it should be expanded as uh, slightly as the city staff is recommending that they do uh, and, and talk about the implications of simply saying no we're going to maintain the status quo and there are some communities that think that that's a good thing I can't see where they're coming from and how they ever came to that conclusion. But uh, it's a tough decision, and they have to make some uncomfortable decisions here, but that's what we pay them for, isn't
2: it? Yeah, exactly, because now we're at a housing affordability crisis, and that means you've got to have some backbone and make the tough calls. And quite frankly, we do need our municipalities to do a much better job, including the city of Hamilton. What's happening now in Hamilton, in my view, you've got some activists uh, who do not want to see more homes come into the marketplace. They can put pressure on council, but I bet you the silent majority in and around Hamilton desperately want to see more affordable homes for themselves or their sons and daughters who played by the rules, got their degree, got a good job, but can't find an affordable home to save their lives. And province, to their credit, under Ford government, have brought in what's called the More Homes, More Choice Act. It was probably the most pro homeownership ownership legislation we've seen in generations, Bill. That was really good to see, but it's basically a toolkit they give to municipalities And too many municipalities have left those tools on the shelf. So, yep, love to see the province municipalities working more closely together. The province could use a carrot and stick approach to say, hey, you use these tools. Well, then your next ask for infrastructure funds for transit or roads or water and sewer moves higher up the list. But they also need a stick, right? If you're not cooperating, not playing ball, you're not actually allowing more affordable homes into your community, well, then you go down the list. I think they've got to be tough about that, but reward good behavior at the same time.
0: Well, and I understand the the, the hue and cry uh, because I support it. That you know, municipalities should have a say. It's their community; they should have a say in how they grow and where they grow. I understand that totally. Uh, But uh, the other end of that is is if they do nothing or if they make idiotic or crazy decisions, uh, there's got to be some accountability for that too. Because this is we're at a crisis point here, Tim, and if any any wrong move right now is only going to set us back even further. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And and activists can sometimes. Um, cause municipalities to take a step back uh, while those that are, you know, hard at work, that are just wishing that the money they've saved they can put towards a home don't have as much time to uh, to get involved. The province should set the standards. They should set goals. We need this many more homes in this area because Hamilton is going to grow by so much and let the municipalities figure out exactly where that growth should take place. But at the end of the day, Bill, hold them accountable for those decisions because if we don't, that young talent is simply going to pull up roots move to other provinces or the states where they can work from home or find jobs elsewhere to Ontario's detriment.
0: Tim Hudak, CEO for the Ontario Real Estate Association. Tim, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today.
2: Now, of course, Bill. Thank you for being such a champion in homeownership, and thanks for having me back on.
0: You betcha. You. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know there have been so many things on our minds over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and as a result, you know, when we start prioritizing one thing, we kind of shove something else to the side and say, yeah, I know that was a, a really important, but we we will get to that later on. This is National Seniors Day. And, uh, well, it, it should, and I think probably does for many of us anyway, uh, bring back to the front burner a number of the issues that we should be talking about that have yet to be resolved when it comes to how we care for our seniors uh, in this community and in every community right across this country. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is a co-founder of uh, Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards and a professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, Vivian, a pleasure to have you back on the program today.
4: Bill, you're the best. Happy to talk to
0: you. I was going to say Happy Seniors Day, but that would be an oxymoron, wouldn't it?
4: Uh, yeah. You can't in any good faith say Happy Seniors Day with everything that happened over the past year and a half. And, and really, that continues to happen. I, I still can't wrap my head around the fact that there has not been one single charge levied against any of these homes. Where, you know, close to 4,000 seniors died and 13 staff. And, and no homes have had their licenses revoked. Like, literally nothing has happened. Nothing has happened to hold to account these known bad actors, and if anything, we're actually doling out more licenses, 25- to 30-year licenses, so they can continue their record of bad behavior by, you know, traumatizing another generation of seniors. So everything's just great and dandy from a senior's perspective.
0: I had occasion to, to visit one of those facilities in this area just a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact. As soon as I walked in the front door, uh, I, I ran into one of the, the, the workers. And I said, oh, you're just at the end of your shift. He says, I'm only about five hours into it. He says, I'm exhausted. This is yep. crazy. I mean, and it's, uh, that comes down to staffing. And you've only been talking about that for the last, what, 10 years?
4: Oh, yeah, forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that nothing has changed, especially in terms of staffing, I mean, it, it is horrifying. It's There is no rationale, and yet... We're still not having this conversation. I mean, where is Minister Phillips talking about the fact that, you know, we need the staffing standard of of four hours, which they said they'll do in five years, which is laughable. We need it now. You talk to any long-term care staffer and they are literally run off their feet. They are losing their minds, understandably. There's never enough workers. There's never enough nurses in particular. And this is all because they try to, you know, save costs by hiring more PSWs. And now they have actually deregulated this sector even more during COVID, which most people don't know about. Now they're literally hiring what they call resident carriers, which is effectively anyone off the street. It is horrifying that we have not only, you know, not beefed up protections, we've actually gone out of our way, we meaning the government, to further deregulate this sector and make it more dangerous for our seniors. I I don't think people realize that this is happening and that this has happened. Our seniors now are in more danger in these facilities than ever before. So do not believe any rhetoric you're hearing out there that, you know, we're going to get tough on these bad actors and we're going to start doing something because nothing has been done so far. So let's be clear on that
0: yeah and, and, and one of the reasons for that is because a lot of these quote-unquote bad actors are people that made huge campaign contributions to certain individuals who are now in government that's one element yeah. to this the other is and, and this is a problem i've got I, I we were talking about the the fact that optometrists are, are withholding services right now and i know you want to talk about that uh, and that's for seniors not just in ltc facilities but other people as well uh, so they can't get appointments and a lot, a lot of things going on and and the you know the the parliamentary assistant was on the program the other day to the health minister and she said yeah but you know the, the technologies are Advanced right now, so you know. So the the optometrist doesn't have to do all the work; the staff can do it. I said you have to pay. You have to pay the staff. If you don't have staff, they're not going to be able to do that. I said, you know what the problem here is? Is that everything with this government is the bottom line, and and these are human beings they're dealing with. Forget the Uh friggin' bottom line and start talking about the quality of life for the employees and the people that are in these facilities.
4: I mean, the fact that there were billions that were, you know, kept aside. During the pandemic, when thousands of seniors were dying in these facilities, tells you all you need to know about the priorities of this government and the fiscal bottom line, which literally apparently supersedes uh, keeping people safe that you claim to govern. I think that is the most despicable part, uh, you know. And, and what I want to talk about you know the the fact that we have literally not held any of these owners to account because something happened the other day which really peeved me. Um, and I'm glad that they went after this home, but a Scotland sweet pack Growers, so a farm in Victoria where 200 people were infected and one migrant worker died. And I'm glad they went after this home. The Ministry of Labour hit them with, you know, over 20 charges, and it includes 27 charges. Um, but, you know, saying that the farm and the owner failed to protect the workers in a variety of ways. And it's up to, you know, now they have to go through this whole proceeding, but it's up to, the, the fines range from up to a year in jail and up to 1.5 million in fines. <laughs> Yet we have not had one launcher and care home hit with any some sort of penalties, hit with any some sort of jail time. Nothing. And I just I went back and I looked through some you know previous uh, discussions in the legislature where, where some amazing MPs, uh, in particular one Jen French, really went after Minister Fullerton about this last October. And I posted a bunch of the pictures, transcript pictures, about that. And you really see the gymnastics the linguistic gymnastics that they are playing here to justify not going after these bad actors like literally the most ridiculous excuses like oh if we if we you know penalize these multi-million dollar corporations they won't be able to hire more staff meanwhile the limit that you can penalize one of these homes is a hundred thousand dollars so you're trying to tell me $100,000 $100,000 is going to hurt their bottom line when I remind everyone that just three of these long-term care chains, Sienna, Charwell, and Spendicare, during the first six months of the pandemic alone, paid out more than $170 million to their investors, while also taking in close to $140 million in government aid. So give me a break. Why are we protecting these people? Why don't we have million-dollar fines like apparently the Ministry of Labor can do out? Why are we actually, oh, I don't know, looking at this from a labor perspective, why isn't the Ministry of Labor in there? Since clearly the Ministry of Long-Term Care is doing nothing, well, why aren't we using any of the recourse we have available to us to hold these people accountable? We continue to give them a free pass to get away with widespread negligence contributing to death. And then, you know, pardon me if if any of them even deign to post some sort of happy National Seniors Day today because I will be coming for those posts very quickly mm-hmm. when in the face of it you have done nothing to actually protect our seniors during COVID. I mean, try to well, at least with long-term care. Find me an area where they've actually helped to protect them.
0: There are two points, uh, flash points that come to mind, Vivian, when we talk about this. One was, and this is early on in the pandemic, I guess in the lockdown, uh, and I had the premier on the show and and he was talking about the fact that this that, that past weekend just a couple of days before that he had visited his mother-in-law in one of these facilities and he says you know what it's it's deplorable we've got to do something about that <laughs> and I said okay he's had eyes on it it's a, it's a, a loved one in his family maybe yeah. we're going to get some action nothing yeah. crickets nothing, and then nothing. then just a few months ago when the, the, and the then new minister Phillips uh, said he did flash inspections of some of these facilities and he said you know and we've we've seen some things and some problems here that have to be fixed nothing there, there, there are no ramifications to this. In other words, these guys, know, I don't care who walks through the door, because you know what, I don't care what you see, because nothing's going to happen about it.
4: Yeah, it's, um, you know, there, there is this level of arrogance and impunity that these, you know, uh, particularly for-profit long-term care homes get to operate with, because they know that they'll get away with anything. It doesn't, and, we, and, and at what point, like, what message is it clear that you'll get away with anything? If you got away with anything during the worst, humanitarian crisis because keep in mind what happened to long-term care residents during COVID was no question the worst humanitarian crisis we have seen in the last hundred years. We have not seen that, um, like COVID, there's no question this was the worst population hit during COVID, no question about it. And yet nothing has happened. Nothing has happened the federal level, the provincial levels, we have not seen anything to actually hold this system to account or provide some revolutionary change if there's ever a time to, to say okay, you know, this This sector is clearly broken. Everybody agrees. This is the time to change. This is the time to actually listen to the experts, listen to the evidence that exists, and to create some very drastic change. Because if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? You're never going to do it. There's never going to be an emergency like, well, I pray we don't see one, and I don't think we're going to see one for at least another 100 years, another kind of pandemic like this. But if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? And it's been, what, 17 months? And we have not seen anything appreciably improved in long-term care, particularly in Ontario. And it's just, it's really upsetting to everyone who is living in this system, working in this sex, in this system and just paying attention and seeing how little has been done to improve it.
0: Pre-pandemic. And, and you and I both saw this firsthand. Uh, the, the same things existed: the staff shortages and and the living conditions, etc. But oftentimes, loved ones and family members would pick up the slack a, yeah. if they could. I mean, in some cases, they're just not available. Uh, but when they could, you know, and I knew families that were spending like six, seven, eight hours a day in some of these facilities yeah. uh, looking after their loved ones because there was and and God bless the staff, but they just you know there's two or three people looking after yeah. 40. You can't be everywhere at once. Well, of course, as soon as the pandemic came around, those people aren't allowed in the building. So, all of a sudden, this thing gets exposed, and they did nothing about it. They said, whoops, okay, uh, you know, and, and a lot of it comes down, I know I, I, I talk about this all the time, is staffing. And, and I'm, you know, it's, it's level of care. Uh, and I know some of the people that work in these facilities, and they're frustrated. And I know other people that used to work in these, and they, they've quit. They said, I can't do this anymore.
4: 100% they quit. Yeah. 100%. It's a revolving door for a reason, right? It's a, and it's the big known dirty secret that that everyone knows about, and and COVID only made that clear because now it was like, you know, staff were starting to die too, and they weren't properly protected because all the you know supports went to acute care to hospitals while leaving long term care in the lurch, which is you know exactly what happened. And, you know, there's a reason why we have the data from the former DeLease report, the former, you know, the wet locker inquiry, that 50 percent of PSWs in particular are leaving healthcare within five years and 43 percent of them leave LTC altogether because of burnout from working short and working short is the code in the system for, for not there's never enough of them. And now, you know, you see less and less nurses, you see even less and less PSWs. And now PSWs are getting frustrated because now they're being replaced by these, you know, resident care aides, which is literally people with zero healthcare expertise or training or any some sort of even credentials that would leave them able to work in this sector. And, and yet, what do you expect is going to happen? So now we see this dangerous shift where we are literally turning this into like a McDonald's style workforce, where it is literally going to be a, a, an even worse revolving door with no professionals because the professionals in the sector are leaving. Because of the low pay, the terrible working conditions, which, you know, no government has continued to address to this point. And then we're just going to see more people move in that, frankly, should not be there. Because this is a very difficult sector to work in. And you need to have a certain level of, you know, ability, training, certain sort of patience and mindset. Not everyone can work in long-term care. This is incredibly difficult work. And the fact that they went out of their way to deregulate it even further during COVID to let anyone off the streets work in these facilities, really shows you where their priorities are and who they were protecting. They were protecting the bottom line interests of very wealthy people in this sector who are dominating the discourse and the policy development agenda, quite frankly. And, you know, we see the, the municipal homes and, and a lot of the not-for-profit homes who have far better outcomes and are doing, you know, the things they need to do to provide as much care as they can amid historic underinvestment. Don't get me wrong, we, don't, we do not provide provide enough investment to any of the homes. But yet, certain homes go out of their way to, you know, take a deficit to then fundraise and try to do more above and beyond the, the crappy amount that they are given by the provinces, which is also tied to the feds. Um, and then the for-profits just, you know, they're just not doing that. We have the evidence. The money is going to the shareholders, and it's not going. And yet we have had zero discussion from this government. Actually, they have defended the interests of the for-profit sector, and they've tried to say the for-profit it doesn't matter when we have glaring evidence to the opposite so it's um, I fear that things are just going to continue to get worse particularly with this government which has shown zero sense of urgency um, to address the issues that remain and furthermore are ignoring the kinds of experts and the kinds of, of you know individuals staff residents families who are telling them what needs to happen and instead are focusing on the interests in my opinion, of the industry, of a very powerful for-profit lobby industry.
0: Well, we we already know that the uh, the municipally-owned facilities, well, first of all, tend to pay their staff more. Uh, yep. that, that, and so as a result, there's more staff retention than there is in the yep. other facilities. Uh, we also know that the level of care is better. The staffing numbers are much better in those facilities, marginally mm-hmm. better, because they're still limited. We also know that during this federal campaign, all of the parties, including the liberals that were reelected, uh, promised to send more money into long-term care. But and then you've got the premiers, uh, and not surprisingly, Vivian, simply say, just give us the money and, and we'll decide how yeah. it's going to go that just means the status quo is going to be maintained
4: a hundred percent which is why you know i was very upset with with our prime minister for not you know taking a harder line on on national standards and creating a very clear separate system of funding tied to very non-negotiable and a handful of key areas respective staffing would be most of them and penalties and oversight um and then you have to make them play ball, right? This is how we created the Canada Health Act. This is how we got universal health care that we have in our current version, which unfortunately excludes long-term care proper. Um, so we need to create that separate parallel system, a separate form of, of Medicare that really focuses on, on moving towards universal public nonprofit long-term care, because the evidence is clear on this, and, and nobody, he is not doing it. You know the, the Greens and the NDP were really the only parties that were looking at the evidence and, and, and moving towards that in their you know, you know, discourse around the election, but mm, Trudeau's not doing anything, and that's even more frustrating. I mean, he has the power to do certain things. We have worked with them, with the Ontario Healthcare Coalition, has created legal briefs, submitted it to the feds, and said, this is how you can do it. This is how you can create this legislation and actually create this system so we can start at the federal level to have some sort of improvement and forcing the provinces to play ball, right? And if we just keep giving out money and then letting the provinces hoard that money and do God knows what with it when people are dying, I mean, (laughs) then you're all complicit. You're all
3: complicit.
0: Which is what happened in Ontario. They just kept the yeah. money there. And, and I know we, we, we talked to the finance minister, oh, that money's all been allocated for. Well, it hasn't been spent. I don't care what you've allocated it for. It's going to be spent down the road. On what? We don't know. Anyway, we, we're just about out of time here. Vivian, thank you, first of all, for the time today, but uh, for continuing to fight the good fight. We've got to maintain the, the, the heat on this government and, and every government uh, subsequent to this as well to make sure that this problem gets addressed and rectified. Uh, stay doing what you're doing, and we'll talk again soon.
4: You too, Bill. You're the best.
0: Take care. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards and a professor at Ontario Tech University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.